What's up, everybody? Welcome to another edition of The Side Hustle. I'd love to tell you what number episode this is, but I have zero idea at this point in time. As a matter of fact, I don't even know what day of the week it is. However, we're here. We're talking to people in the event production world and just getting some stories and trying to keep people entertained during this lovely phase of COVID-19 and shelter in place. It's Jimmy here alongside Angela and Jules. And our guest today, we've got Dave Unterreiner. And Dave, what we've deduced prior to hitting the record button here that we may not actually uh, remember each other's faces right now, but and we ha- may not have worked together, but we've actually figured out that we've probably been in the same bar together and shared a cocktail over the last decade and a half or so. But uh, welcome to the show, Dave. And basically, let's start this off. Let everybody know who you are, who you work for, and what exactly it is that you do in the event world. Thanks, Jimmy. I'm and Ange and Jules. I'm excited to be here and honored that you that you're having me. Um, I am the owner of Out of the Ash Productions. We are uh, a production company, logistic company that uh, is kind of uh, morphed out of uh, being on the front lines of the of the event world, and I've just kind of been bumming around to that that world with different companies and who's ever got the the gig and is paying the money for the last 10 or 12 years now and been lucky enough to meet Ange and Jules um, but first time meeting you Jimmy it's an honor. So I, I, it's a pleasure to have you on the show and likewise sir so I'm curious I all these different event companies I mean there's a lot of them and it doesn't matter I mean my background's primarily action sports but I know for Angela and Jules Jules has done a lot of stuff not just action sports but racing and Angela's done all sorts of things um, it the one thing to me that's kind of cool is like all these different production company names how did you come up with the name out of the ashes Oh that's a good question there's probably like four or five different answers too different stories um i think really what actually probably the what happened was um in like right before i started the company in 2013 it was 2012 and um we had i had all of my tools and like anything that you would make money with um all in a in a barn in durango and that barn burnt down and everything inside it burnt down uh, so oh, I, no. I lost all my t- lost all my tools and everything, and um, we when I was looking at having to repurchase everything, and a buddy of mine said you should start a company, write it all off, and um, and then so that's what happened, and it was out of the ash of that fire came the company essentially, and then it's uh, we mainly go by acronym OTA now. Um, but that's the the original name, the original story behind it. So out of tragedy and loss comes a brand new business venture, right? There's what you're saying. That's right. Yeah, trying to make the, so, the most out of whatever's in front of you. See, that's it's one of the reasons why I ask those types of questions because the, the underlying theme of all this, all the different interviews that we've done is that everyone has a story. So sometimes it may just be something as simple as, oh, we just came up with this idea or this name. But for other people like yourself here, I mean, it's a story of, okay, I had this adverse situation happen. And instead of letting it, you know, work negatively against me, I've created this new, this new entity. Um, For people out there that may not know that have never had to work behind the scenes in an event, when you've amassed tools, I mean, it's not like you just go out and drop a bunch of cash and just all of a sudden you've got all the stuff that you need for event events i mean this is stuff that 
it takes a lot of time to gather all the things that you kind of acquire over the years. Explain what that process is like. You said it was a total loss. What was that whole process like going through? Did you, I'm assuming you had insurance or no. Uh, I, I, I could be wrong on we that. Did. What was that I whole did. process like? Okay, you did good. Uh, it was it was a nightmare. I mean, I, anytime I think we all probably are on the same page when you're dealing with the insurance, it's a nightmare, um, no matter what's going on. So that that process was a nightmare, and um, the you know I I think you hit it on the head when you're doing events. It's uh, every event is a different tool set. Every day, almost at each event, is a different tool set. Almost every hour. Um, you know, you could, you just need so many different things to customize uh, this, you know, a unique temporary build in a situation or in the middle of a city or on the top of a mountain, wherever it is, you know, you never know what you're going to need. So you, you got to bring the whole kitchen sink and, um, you know, and you end up with these tools that you never thought you would ever use, you know, growing up or just working around the house but there's so many different tools and so many uses for them. And there's always something at some event where someone's like, man, it would save hours if we just had this. So you go, you know, you end up buying that. And over the years, it's, it turns into a warehouse full of stuff. And it's great when you have it and you can use it. Um, it's no fun when you lose it, but uh, it, you know, good things came out of it. And here we are, we've, We've reamassed everything and we're rolling again. So it's uh, it's been fun building back up, and now we have crazy tools that I didn't know existed back then, and we use them all the time. So it's just it's one thing after another, and each project is is so unique and different that you build up kind of a a core set, and then it seems like with every project comes a new a new toy. Or a new tool or whatever it is. Yeah, I so, think that's kind of yeah. one of the things that gets overlooked as well, too. People think like, okay, you've just got this list, like you said, a core set of tools, but people don't realize like, okay, it's different. Are you on a beach? Are you in the middle of a field somewhere? Are you in the forest? Are you on a mountain? I mean, each each event site requires different things. And it's not like in a situation like you had, where you had a complete and total loss, where you can just sit down and talk to the insurance adjuster and you're waiting for a check to show up and you're just making this master checklist of like, okay, I got to go to Harbor Freight or Northern Tool or Home Depot or whatever. And I got to order X, Y, and Z. I mean, we're talking years of things like you had mentioned before that you didn't even realize that you needed until you got to a certain job and you're like, oh, I need that. And another thing that I think a lot of people don't realize about behind the scenes is sometimes it's not even a tool that you can go and buy. It's something that you have to create that you come across a situation. You're like, I need this. I don't know where I can get something like this. And you or someone on your crew just designs this thing, whether it's something simple or intricate, but then you end up with these devices, if you will, that just kind of end up in a job creator in a Home Depot bucket. And you're like, oh, I got to go make a bunch of those again. Yeah, that's that's very true. There's a lot of creative, creative minds and people in this industry. And the nice thing about when you custom build and fabricate stuff like that, it's usually, or at least the tools that we've built ourselves have been out of metal. And uh, the ones that were built way back then before the fire, you know, when all the ash got pushed away, those, those hardcore self-built tools were still laying there. They had rust and they were black and smelled like smoke, but you clean them right up and 
polish them off and they're they're ready to go again so that that was that was a cool thing out of that fire um after everything got got removed there was a pile of of tools pile of stuff that like just fire can't take away and we still have a lot of those today and um they're they're a great thing to have on them like hey do not lose this <laughs> yeah whatever whatever happens protect this one <laughs> and you survive the worst do not lose this so yeah how did you get into this whole event world what was the beginning stage of all this for you tell us how you got into setting up events um it, it really ties back to a name that's probably pretty familiar with a lot of people listen to this dale womack um we came i i moved down to durango colorado after college and um became a a boatman down there and worked on the railroad for six years and through that course of time became great friends with dale womack who's been doing events in this industry for a long long time and um he got me on to the first thing i ever did was cold rush when it was in silverton and um and then it kind of just had it evolved a little from there those roles each year got a little bigger and then i um i quit the railroad and moved to kentucky for some reason and didn't have much going on and dale called me up and it was the second year of red bull crashed ice so he he asked if i'd go up there for 30 days and and be on that crew and I did and I just fell in love with it and that was kind of the one that that solidified it for me it was such a unique build that uh and uh, and such a unique project it was more I guess much more of a construction concept which was kind of more in my background than just a temporary you know one week event um so I got hooked on that and then as you know the network just continues to build and you have so many different people from so many different places that collapse on that event that um, you know word spreads and you get your name out there and then it just kind of keeps going from there and um, i was lucky enough to run into the states and kingdom crew and eric matievich as well and so it just kind of evolved, you know, Dale got me in and uh, Andrew Markey took me under his wing and then Eric Matijevich has been excellent. And Brian Trujillo, who you guys have also spoken to, is, and BME played a played a huge role in that, being out here in, in our world in Colorado. We're just a stone's throw from them. Um, so I did a lot of work with BT uh, out here in the winter. And, uh, you know, it just, continue to grow and I uh I knew I wanted to to work for myself and so it evolved into my own company and it was important to me that you it's, it feels like you get into this there, there's only so many players in a small space right and um we just kind of it was important to me to not try to interfere with anything anyone else had going on so we when I started my company, the, the goal is to shift more to a logistics, freight, trucking, warehousing type company and be a, a support crew for these these other guys. 
and these other companies um, helping get get infrastructure to the place, storing it when there's not an event. And it was a way to not compete with good friends and still be involved. And that's kind of what it's shaped into today. The, the long story or short story, however you want to look at it there. So you mentioned construction background. What kind of construction did you do before you got into events? Well, it was mainly railroad stuff, um, but it was the concept of building and, and kind of creating like something that didn't exist before. You know, we were building new railroad lines in Silverton and um, I got, I was a big part of building bridges for, for railroads and or that railroad out in Durango. And doing inspections and during when you see bridges, you're talking about those elaborate wooden structures that you see when you're driving around in different mountain terrain. Exactly. Yeah, they've come a little bit. Um, they've advanced a little from from the old ones that that you see now, fortunately. But um, yeah, it's uh, you know just small small passages for for freight trains, and that was such a cool concept for me. And just the idea of like the Blake canvas, you know, so much of events are tents and uh, you know little pop-up inflatables and, and that's all great and fun but like uh, crashed ice blew me away because you got this blank canvas on a city street in st paul coming off this incredible cathedral and it was like what are we doing and you're looking at the maps and trying to figure it out and it just was you know i couldn't wrap my head around it walking onto the site and then as it was as it was being built, I was just like, this is cool. Like the, it's, it's such a cool thing to have come together. And, uh, you know, I just, I feel like if you're building whatever it is, you know, now we do a lot of custom, custom structures for clients and a lot of fabrication, metal fabrication. So it's, it's just kind of creating something from nothing. I, it's what I think I really enjoy about the event world. Um, and, I like building things with tools too, instead of, you know, plugging in a, plugging in a something and it blows up, you know, that's fun, but you're not building something, you're not creating something, you know, so I, I that's kind of why I, why I enjoy those um, kind of more ex extravagant events, I think. And when you're actually getting together with people in this industry that are so brilliant and so smart and so like capable of, crazy different things and you're just seeing all these skill sets come together um and to have something built and then they use it and then boom you tear it down and it's just i i i, I think the the minds that we have and the, the creativity and um the people that we have in not only the event industry but the entire gig economy are some of the greatest minds and in the world really as far as creativity and logistics go we're such problem solvers and troubleshooters and i really think some of the it's likely that some of the big solutions and creative solutions that come out of our current economic situation come from uh, minds out of this industry and people out of this industry Just a lot of brilliant yeah it's a pretty wonderful concept to go into some of these production meetings or just even on the phone in the early stages and early planning and development of these different events and then being responsible for taking someone's idea or someone's PowerPoint presentation and 
just sort of taking it off of their computer and making it come to life uh, when the event comes around, especially what you're talking about when you literally have to fabricate this with just tools and just bare resources, be it lumber or in what you were talking about with metal fabrication and whatnot. I mean, that's, that's, that's definitely a very rewarding experience. It is. It's scary when it's sitting there on paper and uh, <laughs> you're like, man, we're going to need some people that know what they're doing, you know? Um, and then, but, you know, you meet those people and, and, and those people know people and, you know, whether you're building, you know, skate ramps or, I mean, who knows, you know, the, the list of things you're doing is just endless, but the skill sets, it's like always needing a different tool for every day and every job you also need a different skill set and you don't, you know, unfortunately I don't know anybody in the event industry that has all the skill sets that, that you need on any given day. And it'd be great if they, if someone did, but I haven't met them. Ange is pretty close, but she's not quite there yet. Um, but you know, that's, uh, it's, it's just, it's such, it's cool to, to be able to work with such, you know, a, a multitude of different, talent pretty special it's just kind of cool too when you get different people from all different walks of life that come together and like you mentioned everybody's got a different skill set and then you just sort of it's not like you can go to an event production class and just go figure this all out you know going to school yeah. a couple nights a week at the local community college you're kind of you're picking this up as you go along and sometimes you're at an event i from my personal experience uh, you know, driving some heavy equipment. I mean, I grew up building the crappiest skateboard ramps ever as a kid, but you learn general, you know, woodworking skills and whatnot. And that translated into construction jobs in my early twenties. But, you know, when I got, when I work on an operations career, I've got that background and just some common sense things and a general nature of tools, but heavy machinery was something that I'd never really done before. I mean, I'd driven a small forklift, but, uh, this past October working with Angela, I finally drove a 10 K reach and I was terrified of that thing, but it was like, you know what? They're like, get in, do it. We'll talk you through it. You're going to offload this semi. And like I said, it's not like you go to, you, not like you can go to school. I mean, I guess technically you can for heavy equipment, but I mean, but the point is like, you just, it's trial by fire. It's like, well, there's no time better than the present to learn. So they're like, get in, you're offloading this truck. So it took a little longer than was planned, but I learned how to drive a 10 K reach. So it's cool. Stuff like that to me is like, you just, you're, you're always learning. Yes. I think everybody in everybody that, that drives equipment in our industry probably learned the exact same way. You know, it's like, all right, you know, how often do you just have a 10 K and a skiddy and a front loader and everything you ever want in an open parking lot with no hazards? It just doesn't happen. So you've got to learn somewhere and, and uh, you may as well learn with your best friends who are, who are willing to talk a little shit if you screw it up and give you some, support if you nail it and walk you through it um those nerve-wracking moments too and you know you're learning and four different people have four different opinions about what you should be doing uh, but yeah every everyone learned that everyone learned the same way i feel like um you know i andres martinez from bme he called me up uh well, frozen rush the very first year that it happened red bull frozen rush uh, he called me up and I, I had some previous uh, experience in heavy equipment from railroad days. Um, but he called me up and he said, Hey, we need a snowcat driver. And have you ever driven one of those? And I said, yeah, absolutely. I had never 
you know, even really even looked at a snowcat. I, I was pretty <laughs> fresh in this game, but I knew that it had to be similar to a car and it wasn't like, you know, there wasn't all these crazy parts and, and, um, so we were, the job was to haul these huge concrete blocks up the mountain on a trailer behind a snowcat. And so I, I said, sure, you know, I, I can do that. And the same thing, I showed up on site, flew me all the way out there. I was nervous for a month committing to Dre that way. Um, but hopped in and, you know, like, uh, I think one guy got in there with me for about five seconds, walked me through some things and then was off and running, you know, you're on a ski hill, there's skiers around and here, here you go. So, uh, that's, that was my big nerve wracking equipment story. Um, as, as far as really thinking I might screw something up, but it worked out great. And uh, we had a, we were on night shift at that event, and it was fantastic. The day crew had, was working like 16-hour days, and Dre was super efficient, and we were working about four-hour nights. So we'd come in from a shift, do all of our tasks, go back to the hotel, and the day crew would still be drinking in the bar, and we'd be done and have like 20 hours to sleep. It was the best job ever. And if most people who were there will tell you it was the worst job ever. The weather was terrible, and the day crew just had a had a brutal time. But it was a fantastic experience for us on the night crew, and I got to learn how to drive snowcats. So that was that was a good good event. Those things look a bit intimidating. I've never actually driven one. I've ridden plenty of them, but just especially to see those guys operating on a mountain at night. Uh, you, just, you know, you see them off in the distance with the spotlights on and whatnot, and just you're dealing with mountain terrain for starters, but then lack of visibility and especially in some pretty crummy weather conditions. I mean, hats off to people that can actually operate those things and operate them well. Oh, they're, they're brilliant people. I mean, the, the things they can do now with, with snow cats and shaping, shaping jumps and shaping the, the pipes and even just, you know, just a, a regular guy that, like you said, driving it, trying to, trying to get a groomer done in a snowstorm. It's just, they are, man, they're fun to watch. And it's, they can, if you got a lot of snow, it's, it's crazy how fast they can shape, you know, the, the ground differently and essentially your entire world. Like you just, all right, we need 30 feet of snow, 20 by 20 right up here. And it's like, all right, an hour and a half after the resort closes, it's there. It's crazy. Yeah, it's pretty wild how those guys get after it after the resort closes down and you'll see them and they're going until about midnight, one, two in the morning. And then you wake up the next day and it's it's a completely different look on that mountain. Totally different, you know, and you don't bring in dump trucks of dirt. It's like everything's just right there. They just have they just shape it and then they're really, really good at it. And they just keep getting better and better and better. And the things we're seeing and I mean, the the innovative pipes, kind of the the you know, and just the with the progression of of the half pipe in general on these snow courses is a is a true testament to the people driving the machines and and the and the people with the shovel shaping it all as well. Yeah, the as last well couple of winter the concepts. Last couple of winter events I've worked at, I've spent some time just kind of standing there watching the pipe cutter 
and just staring at how elaborate that whole piece of machinery is and just the way that you've got one machine at the top with a giant cable that's just kind of helping lower that guy down the pipe and then pulling him back up it's, it's just it was amazing i stood there probably for the the last time i probably stood there and watched it for about two and a half hours and i was just amazed by it all it is it's fun to watch it's it's something else those winch cats I'm are standing watching it. scary I'm to be around like, i want to ride along with that thing i want to sit shotgun while this guy's cutting the pipe i wonder what i gotta what do <laughs> we gotta talk to to make that happen <laughs> I'm supposed to be making notes yeah. for a production meeting and instead I'm sitting there thinking about how do I get to ride shotgun on the pipe cutter? How do I make this happen? Yeah, you um, know it's Oh good, sorry. I don't know how many cases of beer you'd have to give give up for that. It's an expensive ride. I mean it would be worth it. I'm gonna have to look into that next winter. That's that's on my it's on my bucket list. Um speaking of winter events, I'm gonna go back to crashed ice that one in particular is i that one it's it's one on in the red bull family that i personally have never attended in person but uh it's a pretty intense build out and i mean for most people that don't know i mean basically you guys and you kind of touched on this earlier you're basically carving this course uh out of a you know out of what is a urban area for the most part and i mean you guys literally have to start from scratch and put up all this scaff and create this ice that ends up being that course. Let's talk about just the sheer enormity of build that goes into putting up a production like that. Uh, it's, I mean, it's crazy from an operational standpoint and, and really I, I know very little about how crazy it is as far as what all goes into the planning. Um, uh, you know, Andrew Markey and Jason Shield at Hangman do do all that, and they do a great job because when we get there, it's everything rolls pretty efficiently. And but, I mean, we, you know, we get there. We're I'm, I'm usually there about 31 to 33 days before the actual event, and it's like when we were in St. Paul for I think it was eight or nine years. It's you have the scaff crew; they come in first, obviously. Um, and you know you got to start shutting down roads right away, which really is a is a big hassle in a in a city. Um, and you're right there in front of that church, um, which is the most remarkable church in the world, almost. And um, so you have international tourism all day, um, and all kinds of people who aren't quite used to the standards of safety that that we have in this country. So it's even down to like just dealing with people on the sidewalk is crazy and um and then you get you're thinking the whole time that a month from now it's going to be ice and everything's going to be safe everything has to be perfect it's an entirely different landscape in a month so to ha be able to have that visual ahead of time i mean and cleaning like it's so much down to like cleaning the gutters on the streets and um, I mean, just the details are, are crazy. Uh, you can't have any mud on the streets. You can't have mud on the grass. You know, you mulch the entire area because uh, you don't want the ice to, to get dirty or look bad on TV, obviously. Um, so it's just the details. You get the scaff crew in, and then there's a certain number of structures, uh, and they're kind of getting ahead of um, our crew that comes in construction-wise. You lay the lay the beams on the scaff, you lay the plywood on that, 
and then you start uh, building, shaping up the walls, and then um, you line everything and lay down refrigeration mats, and you're just kind of working behind each other as you're going down the track. And then eventually everything, um, you know, you basically there's usually three or four different systems that get chilled. Um, that'd be like a hockey rink, um, you know, individually. Uh, so you're working kind of in systems and then everything gets built and you fill these refrigeration mats up and they freeze for 24 hours with this uh, saltwater solution. And, and then one night you bring in your crew and get 12 to 15 hoses going and you got a crew of guys standing out there st paul it was like negative 20 a lot of nights and some nights we had temperatures negative 15 or below for for 12 13 days consecutive and the winds are so bad and you know you you have night crews out there and you're spraying all the time uh 24 hours a day but um the um and you just keep just keep building, keep building nice and building nice. And you get essentially about five inches of ice and, um, they skate on it for a couple of days and a hundred thousand people show up and then it's gone. And then it goes back to where you thinking in the beginning, because after it becomes ice, it, it, it melts. And in St. Paul, it doesn't melt very long. So you, you, you heat water up in those refrigeration systems to melt it. And it, it runs until it gets off those refrigeration systems and then it's ice again. So if you're not totally prepared for that situation, you show up the day after the event and your melting has begun and the entire four city blocks is covered in ice. It's a bad deal. So, uh, you know, it's just, it's such a process that you you think ahead for so long. And, you know, I know that, uh, Marky's working on that for a year and a half in advance a lot of times and um, it's just it's such a cool event to see it all come together and the sheer production of it once once TV and lights and sound and the people the, the citizens of St. Paul get there it's the coolest thing it's just really a special feeling and um, we we got to actually do it in Fenway Park last year 2019 and that was an entirely different experience it's total you know encapsulated there you have the union you have and you're in a historic ballpark um it was a totally different experience so it's uh, it was still a crazy build i was there for 47 days and um it was just it's it's nutty trying to bring in all that infrastructure on on a little side street on at finway park is uh it, there's, you know, it's it totally unique circumstances to what we dealt with in St. Paul, but uh, just anytime that even happens, it's, it's such a large scale and such a fun operation and production. And then to see it all as a finished product is, um, it's a special, special thing. Uh, it's something that, that I'm certainly always proud of working on. And I know the whole hangman team is very proud of working on it. It's a, it's a good one. And you guys talk so much, have talked so much throughout this podcast about family and, you know, you really get to, you missing your, your road family and, um, and that family in particular, since you're there for so long, it's, it really becomes a tight knit group. So, uh, it's, it's, it's just a unique event in so many ways.
you're there a long time is, is probably the most unique thing about it. And the, just the complications and logistics that go behind it and international, um, you know, I, I, that, that's a really cool thing about it. I think it was Vanessa that was talking about, you had asked her what one of her favorite events was. And she had said, I think, I forget what it was, but it, it came around to the fact that there was an international family and you don't always get to work with that. And that's, um, you know, over a 10 year crashed ice period, you have a lot of the same people coming back from all kinds of different countries. And it, um, to me, that's very cool about it too, because it's, it's one of the few international events that I do. And those are, you know, some really good friends that we communicate with year round and that, you know, they, they come into the U S to see us and, and hang out with us and just off work. So it's, you know, I, I, that is such a big part of it as well. It's the board and hearing Vanessa say that, and that, that really reflects to me as well. You miss, we miss each other. And that's, I guess, why you guys started this podcast as well. And it's a brilliant idea just to get a, sit around and talk. I wish we could do it in a parking lot with a cooler beer, but this will do as well. I mean, technically we can. I mean, there's a parking lot a block away. I can go get some beer right now and I can just take my laptop and we can, <laughs> I can, I can video conference this thing. We could turn this into that kind of party, Dave. I don't know. Jules is on, on the line. She's our HR department. Jules, would that be acceptable? Totally acceptable. I'm grabbing my beer right now. I don't Let's know do if it. Jules wants to go hang out in a parking lot in Eureka, California, because there will probably be all sorts of background conversations because she will be bothered throughout the rest of this recording by people just randomly walking up. I don't know. You ever been to Eureka, California, Dave? I, ha I have not. No, I was, Jules told me where she was and, uh, no, I've never it's an been interesting up there. <laughs> a very I interesting imagine. place. Jewel, give us the 30-second hard sell on Eureka Arcata. Yeah, no. Nobody wants to come here. It's horrible. <laughs> Let's just put it this way. It's the first stop for prisoners when you get released from Pelican Bay. They give you a one-way bus ticket and 20 bucks, and that's that's basically where they drop you off is right there at Eureka Arcata. Just get locked down there, Jules? What happened? Yeah, um, I came home to take care of my parents and get them ready for this whole thing. I didn't realize that we were going to actually get locked down in the state. So um, came home, got got them a bunch of groceries, you know, Clorox wipes, paper towels, all that. And then uh, the governor said, California is on lockdown. So I've been here since March. Haven't left the, left the property and, you know, just hanging out. So I will not be in a parking lot, but I will be in my driveway if you guys want to put this thing together. Man, I, I think don't that know. could I mean, be a possible spin on this. Cocktails and video feed? What do you think, Angela? Uh, yes, I'm in. But, uh, let's do it. So We've reshaped this whole thing this. in the last 38 hours. <laughs> we're now adding photo elements to this, and now we're talking about possible podcast drinking video chats. Look out. We're coming in hot in the entertainment business. This is the beauty of the event industry. See, we're always making improvements. Everybody's got ideas. Everybody has good ideas. So it keeps getting better. What if we turn this into like we could get the video chat going and then like Dave could give us some welding tips and maybe I could make something out of some two by fours. We could we could turn this into a whole different YouTube series. <laughs> we, could tell them, we could tell these girls how to, how to bake bread too. 
Oh, there we go. I got I got the jalapeno cheddar loaf round two going today. Yeah, a kitchen tour with Jimmy. <laughs> good. It, it's been a pure disaster. I, I'd never done bread before outside of using a bread machine. And then someone, all my friends were doing it. And I was like, all right, I'm going to dive into this. So I tried this obscure recipe and it worked. So I kind of got hooked. I don't know. Um, you know, going back to what you said a couple of minutes ago, I think that was, I agree with you. I think that was kind of the whole base. And Angela, you can correct me if I'm wrong here. I think that was kind of how this whole thing started with the side hustle was that, uh, I mean, it's you, you developed this family and we've used that term a lot in several of these recordings. And I, I, I can't think of a better way to describe it because I mean, you literally, you go out and you meet these people and some of them you may know, and some of them, you know, are complete strangers. But by the end of an event, whether you're there for a week or you're there for six weeks, you just sort of end up building this bond because you're all in it together, no matter what happens, the good, the bad, and everything in between. At the end of the day, it's not like it's a traditional construction job or a road construction kind of thing where it's like, okay, problems happen. We're going to push the deadline back. Like your deadline's a hard out because the event's got to go at this certain time. And that's that. So no matter what happens, it's got to go off and it's got to go off on that day and that time because the doors are going to open and the people that are paying for this thing and putting it on, they're expecting results. So whether it's it runs smooth or whether you have some problems or whether it's a complete disaster, you're all in this together and you just develop these friendships. And to me, it's really cool because, you know, it may be people from across the country, but like you were saying earlier, you end up developing these friendships with people from other countries and you may not work together again, or you may not, they may not work for the same company, but you just, those friendships, they kind of don't go away. You end up being social media friends. And then you find out later on, like, Hey, that person's in your neck of the woods and you play tour guide, or maybe they come crash on your couch. Like those friendships that have developed over the years, that to me and all of this, I mean, not to mention the travel, but the friendships that you build to me are pretty priceless. They really are. They really are. They're the, they're the crown jewel of it all. You know, at the end of the day, you get, we get to see some really, really cool things and have some, some unique experiences. Um, you know, like Jules was hitting on last episode, I believe with, um, or you guys, was it you both talking about your experiences in Africa or wherever it was where the crazy, the crazy jaunt into the woods and, and, uh, to pet the rhino and kiss the rhino on the lips. Oh, Jules was, Jules was possessed on that trip. There was a whole side of her that I'd never seen before. The first thing they told us when we got to that resort was don't ever get out of the vehicle. And then two days later, the guy's like, hey, get out of the vehicle. And she's just whoop, over the side and running into the tree line following our driver. And I'm like, okay, if Jules is doing it, I got to do it too. Yeah, I, just unique experiences everywhere. Yes, I was after a cheetah. No, just... Uh... You know, no matter where you go, and whether you're in the country or out of the country, that I've been, gotten to go to so many different cities, and um, you know, just places that, that you'd never go and things you'd never experience if uh, if you weren't out there on the road. And and then, you know, on the, on the other hand, there's a lot of things you miss at home as well, and which is this is a nice time for that because everyone's getting to enjoy home time, whether they like it or not. Um, but it's a reality right now. And, um, I, I really enjoy being home as well. Over the last couple of years, that's a shift that I've that I've started to make. But it's uh, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't be there had I not felt like I got my heavy dose of of experience um, in out there on on the road. It's it's cool. And then 
the family is just, you know, that I don't feel like you're ever going to lose those close friends and that close family, whether you're at every event with them or not. You know, I used to fear not being at every event, you know, you didn't want to miss out. And um, now I just realized we're, we're all good friends and, and uh, we're going to see each other down the road at some point and we talk a lot and uh, you, you know, you keep, keep close with, with those that, that you want to and those that you've, you've met on the road. And um, it's, it's quite a unique bond. And it's pretty special. Yeah, this has been an interesting time. Usually well, mid February to beginning of April is kind of a slow period for me. So I, I, it's been, I guess, enjoyable. I don't know if I want to use that term during what we're going through in the world right now. It's been nice being home and just having the ability to just do projects and whatnot that I ordinarily wouldn't have time to start just because I know that I've got to leave town again and just kind of catching up with friends and whatnot and just helping friends out in my area. But uh, it's been, I haven't been in an airplane in forever. And that's, that's been a weird sort of transition for all me is not flying and just not going out of time. The last time I even stepped foot in an airport was March 12th and I didn't even get on the plane. But prior to that, I think it was February 10th. So it's been several months. So it's, it's just weird. It's weird to not, to not be in a hotel. It's, it's, it was a weird transition to go through. And the longer this goes on, I find myself getting more and more used to being home. So it's almost, to me, it feels like I might have to, start over again I'm, am i going to know how to do this when i go through security at the airport <laughs> i think you'll i think you'll remember pretty quick <laughs> like yeah, riding a bike uh, <laughs> different i i was getting i was like one flight away from getting my companion pass so amy could come with me all the time on southwest airlines and you know and then boom like no more flying and um you know, that was one perk and it's gone, but it's nice being home. I, I got to say I'm enjoying it. And, um, you know, we've just been, um, as a company trying to, trying to evolve. And I, th I think it's important that, that you, you know, who knows what it's going to, what we're going to look like a year from now or, and whatnot. So we've kind of taken the approach of, of trying to, trying to evolve and, and find, new avenues and new opportunities and instead of instead of sitting idle and just kind of waiting for it to come back so that's kept us busy and and moving along for sure i guess that's kind of been the name of the game of all this is adaptation and sort of rolling with with the punches which everyone in this business is very skilled at um who knows what the future looks like? I know we've had countless conversations both uh, off of the podcast between the three of us, uh, as well as on some of these recordings. And it, I mean, it, it looks different for everyone and who knows. And I think everyone's kind of looking right now at things like the mainstream sports here in the U.S. to see what happens next and to see where that goes. And a lot of people are looking at, I think, music festivals. Just no one. Angela brings up a good point, And she talks about this often is that no one really wants to be the guinea pig. No one wants to go first to be the first one to go out there and do an event where there's somewhat of a crowd, whatever that ends up being uh, moving forward with the different mandates, both at the state and federal level. Uh, but at some point, someone's going to have to pull pull the ripcord on that and they're just going to have to go out and be the tester. And I feel like once that happens, whatever world that is, uh, I, th I think that'll kind of open the floodgates for a lot of other things. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I certainly hope so. I'm, I'm in the same 
boat. I'm, you know, I'm hoping for the best. I think it's fundamentally, it's going to change quite a bit. Uh, I, I just, I have trouble believing. I think everybody wants to get back into events. Everybody wants to go outside and have events. And we, of course, we want work. Um, but if you, if, for me, I guess I'm a little more pessimistic because I don't think on top of the guinea pig rationale, which I think is, is very point on, you also have, in order to have any, an event, a big event, you have to have a company or a corporation that is willing to stand behind it financially. And if you look at what's yeah. happening to a lot of these big companies, I mean, they're taking big hits. We know they we know they took losses in the first quarter, and we know they're going to take substantial losses in the second quarter. So, as a as a big company um, is is as you're losing revenue, is going back and putting on an event that costs millions of dollars in a lot of cases. Um, it doesn't immediately make profit. Is that going to be the direction that these big companies go? And, um, you know, I just can't see, I don't see it. I don't see that as a smart business decision on their end of things. So I think as much as they want to be out there and they want to push, I think they're having to make very critical business decisions. And, and to me, if you have, if you're losing money, it doesn't make sense to go spend a million, um, they have marketing material at this point. The major players have been stocking marketing material for years, so they can still promote and market um, without spending the millions of dollars on massive events. And, you know, I, that's my fear. I think there's somewhat going to be a ripple effect as much as we want it to, to go back um, the way it was. I think some of the, the major money in the industry is going to struggle to, to put up that money. And I think that will kind of trickle trickle down and somewhat change the fundamentals of how it all works. And I think you're going to have some some new companies trying new things and trying to emerge into a new marketplace. And there's going to be opportunities there. And I I think do think the staples are going to come back and they're they're going to get creative in a lot of different ways. But I mean, if you look just in the last 10 to 15 years, the trend of the industry anyway has already gone into the, into the media content and technology and online stuff where, um, you know, you, and there's so many, so much more money spent on these little TV shoots that don't take huge operations teams and production teams. And, you know, that's value marketing because they can, they can play it a million times on YouTube and it's essentially free. And so I think they're going to, I think the business models have to shape in order for the businesses to survive and um, where they, how they shape and where they go, I think will be different. But um, I'm, I'm certainly hoping that it can roll right back out like it, like it was, but I have trouble seeing it to be honest. And, um, but I do think there's going to be plenty of opportunities. And like I said earlier, I think the, the, the people in this industry are some of the, the best thinkers, most creative people, and have some of the great logistical minds in the world. And they're going to find avenues. You know, we just as a as an as an industry, we can't sit idle. We have to push new things, and we have to 
find new avenues and find the opportunities in, within the chaos, because they're there. Um, so I think if we all adapt and, and um, make the changes we need to, then, then everyone's gonna be just fine. Yeah, I definitely feel that there's new opportunities that will arise from this. I'm with you though. I, I, things are still a bit murky and it's hard to see through all of the haziness of where we're at. And I also agree with you 100% that, you know, a lot of the traditional sponsors that we've had for different things in the past uh, might go away. I mean, everyone's suffering, obviously, financial hardships on this, but I mean, you never know. I mean, maybe, I mean, Amazon's come out of this thing smelling like a rose because people are stuck at home and they're just buying everything they possibly can. So, Hey, Amazon, if you're listening, uh, do you want to sponsor an event? Uh, yeah, alcohol right. sales have obviously been up <laughs> at least here yeah, in Texas. You know, there's, so there's and as Bush, you want to get There's definitely new money and it's just finding it. And, um, there's, you know, there's, I know there's a lot of people that are that are that are working hard right now to figure it to figure it out, and um, you know we're we're in that boat. We're we like being busy and we like uh, creating and coming up with new new things. So you know all the guys, um, our entire staff has just been phenomenal through this process and of of change, and um, everyone's on board with with some new directions that we're taking and. Uh, I think, um, you know, when, when we can't come out of it, you know, our goal is to come back, come back stronger and, um, be a little more flexible and, and be open to, to more opportunities. I feel like we're also looking at some changes moving forward. And I'll use the, the mainstream sports example a while back, you know, with, uh, I don't know if this is everywhere across the country, but just in certain things that I've experienced, they, they would do away with things like women's purses and whatnot going into sporting events. So for example, when you go to a Dallas Cowboys game or a Dallas Stars game or a Mavericks game here, you can't bring your purse and you have to have a plastic bag and it only is allowed to be of a certain size. So they can basically see what you've got when you're coming into the venue. So, you know, just little adaptations like that. So what I could see moving forward is, you know, when you're going to, a hockey game, an NBA game or whatever you're walking in, maybe they start taking your temperature when you walk in those kinds of things, which seems right now, like, man, that's a huge undertaking and a lot more staff, but it's just, it's one of those weird precautionary things that you could kind of see happening, moving forward, not just with sports, but with music events or anything really. I mean, there's definitely going to be some different mandates that come out of this once things kind of start resurfacing and coming back out and, you know, things get up and running again. Oh yeah, I think I think definitely I, we're going to have major changes across the board, and um, I, I think the, probably the the whole country and well, really the whole world is is going to change forever. And it's uh, I mean that's one unique I guess silver lining out of all this, this craziness is it's cool to see the whole world essentially have the same problem instead of all these different problems and everyone worldwide working together i feel like that's that's something in our industry that we get to see occasionally the you know a big melting pot of of cultures come together to make something happen but now you're seeing it on a global scale here and um mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of a cool it's a cool thing to see but it's definitely going to change i think the you know the certainly the professional leagues and um you know i'm a diehard sports fan too i cannot wait for that to start again but same. I think uh, going to going to games is going to be a different experience, and same with obviously me you knowing you 
festivals and you know, I, I, I have a hard time believing people aren't gonna go out and commit to those to spending that money and wanting to be part of that that culture. It's so much of what drives us as people is um, you know, that that social that you know, compatibility that we have with each other and, and wanting to be around people that it's gonna force itself back in, right? And um, you know, but I trying to predict what obviously what this virus is gonna do is wouldn't be a good prediction, I wouldn't imagine. Uh, but <laughs> it's just part of me wonders. Like, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of the wild, wild west because you look at what's going on right now. I just saw this story the other day where the governor of Arizona is like, "Hey, mainstream sports, come on down. You guys can play here because you've got Major League Baseballs trying to figure out. They've been talking for a little bit about getting people together in one area and testing all the teams and all their staff, their core staff." trainers managers and whatnot just having them play and just staying there for months on end until things kind of lift a little bit and the governor of arizona is like hey everybody come on down and you know you've got a lot of rumblings in the nba where some people are like hey let's get after it and other people are like well hey let's just take a beat here but there's definitely opportunity there so as certain states start to lift restrictions whether you like it or not, like you're going to start seeing things start to happen a little bit. So the next couple of weeks and especially the next two months are going to be very, very interesting. Definitely. I think so. And, um, you know, and beyond that, I just, it's going to be, it's going to be an interesting year, I think for sure, all the way across the board, uh, obviously with the elections coming up and then, you know, the whole world's on unemployment for, you know, for a while. And it's like, you know, if, if my fear is, you know, if we don't, if, as you see small businesses, like so many that we're involved with, they're going to have such a hard time. And when people do want to come back to work, the small businesses may not be there and the big businesses will have adapted to hire a smaller workforce. And it's just uh, a scary time, I think. And it's going to be a weird year for sure. So we'll see, we'll see what happens, but I, we're a creative bunch. Could, yeah could be longer than a weird year. I would imagine that the ripple effects from this are going to be far lasting. And on a smaller scale comparison, I mean, as far as adapting as a culture, I mean, look at what we had to go through in this country after 9-11 and the, all the changes just to travel. And I know this is on a much larger scale because, as you mentioned before, this is a global problem. Uh, but, you know, I mean, we went through some pretty big wholesale changes as far as what travel looked like in this country in the weeks and months after that whole situation went down many years ago. So this one's going to be a whole different ball of wax to try to emerge from. Yep. It's a new challenge, new challenge. And that's, you know, we can't shy away from it. Just uh, meet it head on and push it backwards until we beat it down. Well, I know Jules is excited because Supercross announced that they're starting back up on the 31st of this month out in Salt Lake city at Rice Eccles stadium. So, Go ahead and she unmuted oh. her microphone. Go ahead and squeal with excitement, Jules. <laughs> I'm so excited. I can't handle myself. <laughs> I second I know a lot that. of people are super jazzed about that. I know NASCAR's coming back and they're going to do some races. They're going to do a couple of races in quick Sunday. succession, but again, no coming, uh, no fans. Oh, this, it, it's yeah, already this coming, coming Sunday. Sunday? Oh, this okay. coming Sunday is uh, NASCAR at Darlington. So, and I then. I got an article. You, Darlington. She even knows the tracks. I know. Look at me. I've been doing my homework. I never uh, knew you were such a gearhead. 
<laughs> well, I'll, I'll even, I'll go even further and say that, um, so it looks like um, Spartan Race is going to happen on June 13th and 14th in Jacksonville, Florida. So, I mean, there might be other events, but that's one of the first ones I know of like people participation events that have been announced. And I think, you know, I mean, there you go. There's our guinea pig, at least of, of right now on paper. And what's going to be interesting too, it's, it's not so much like, you know, all the folks that sit here on the, the back end side that sit there and make those crazy papers and the maps and think about the logistics. And now we've changed procedures, you know, how do, how do we handle, you know, water stations, uh, you know, all the distancing, how do you get, how do you move people back and forth? You can sit there and have all these plans, but like anybody that's worked a single event knows that people do what people do. And as much as you plan for it, you'll never be able to calculate all the moves that people make or what they're going to do. And so really this is going to be a true test of not only what the organizers have done, but then just watching what, you know, the other side of it, the participants, what are they going to do? How are they going to act? And that is going to be a true, like, you know, I think catalyst for a lot of the stuff that's going to come down eventually, like in event world. Um, that that's really where where I kind of like my mind takes off because you know you can plan for everything and, and as we all know you know even if you nail it down glue it do everything you can it's still going to find a way to like something somebody's going to like wrench something up so yeah I'm really curious to see like not only the like this this guinea pig like this event side of it but I think I'm really like I want to see what the people are going to do what the participants are going to do that's going to be huge for us kind of like dumping out a box of puppies that have been cooped up for hours on end and they're just ready to play. I mean, if it's anything like what happened here in Texas when they opened restaurants back up and patios were a thing again and people could go out, it was just, I mean, it's, I mean, it was literally restaurants here opened on May 1st and it was like, okay, 25% of capacity, but it was like business as usual. Everyone was just, all right, we're out, we're free. We can go do things now. So social distancing has not been a thing here anymore. <laughs> for the most part so i think people have been cooped up for so long it'll be very interesting to see how all that pans out it's going to be good to get people out people need to get out and and uh, feel like they're not breaking the law hopefully just cross our fingers you know it doesn't doesn't end in a disaster but man keeping uh keeping people cooped up is that's a tough thing for sure Yeah, it's 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 been an interesting experiment. We're we're doing it in phases here. I, I, what did I read? I maybe I'm wrong on this. In California, did I read that you guys have shelter in place? That's or is it extended indefinitely, or is that just certain counties? What's going on in California? Uh, yeah. I mean, ultimately, it's it's by counties. Um, that's I read really what's LA County is in in that mode indefinitely there's no end in sight on that right now uh yeah i believe they kind of they they did not give the end date whereas majority of the other locations have been just you know they would extend it there's there's they're just moving the goalposts to at least the date um but mm -hmm. i believe la has not 
made that, you know, mark. They haven't drawn that line in the sand. So that that's the kind of the big, the big question mark. So no one knows, which at least like, you know, if you were, you know, okay, another two weeks or another one week or whatever, that's kind of how it's been moving along. It's been progressing, but now, you know, you're, you're giving people nothing. What about San Francisco? I know you guys were one of the first in the state of California to actually get locked down. What are things looking like there? Um, so right now we're looking at, I believe they've, they've gone to the end of this month to so the end of May. Um, you know, I, I, it goes back and forth. I, I hear things about, um, going now till the end of June, you know, um, but it, it depends on who you talk to. Um, you know, you have different conversations with different people that run different agencies here in the city and it varies um, depending on what their focus is. <laughs> so, um, you know, every kind of agency that you deal with, at least from an event standpoint, um, you know, they kind of have amongst themselves has different views uh, of what can and can't happen. Um, so, I mean, as far as like we're concerned, I mean, the, the event business we have here is, you know, we're, we're still hopeful and we're very, um, I would say we're leaning more towards positive happenings for the fall and winter um you know uh that's how it stands right now so you know hopefully i think really ultimately i think the, like this month is really going to be the telltale sign of if of if events are actually going to happen here um so yeah yeah it's it's been a it's been a strange run here i mean we've had things doled out at the county level. And then all of a sudden the governor came out a week, two weeks ago, three weeks ago and just said, all right, May 1st, restaurants, retail, malls, movie theaters, 25% capacity, social distancing. And then three days later came out and said, okay, hair salons, nail salons. And now phase three starts Monday where we get to open gyms and I guess bars are opening back up. So i I don't know. Well, I mean, our numbers really haven't trended downward. As a matter of fact, they've gone up here, at least in Dallas County. And I know Harris County, which is Houston, has had a spike in numbers. So I don't, we definitely didn't flatten any curve around here, but Texas is open for the most part. Yeah, Colorado's the same way. I mean, we have the same issues. If county has, you know, one restriction, city has another restriction, state has another restriction, and it's just, no one knows really, so everyone's everyone's just playing it on their own. And um, but we have essentially, I think, safer at home restrictions in until like the 27th of May or so right now. And my, I'm only focused on Summit County because the lake Lake Dillon just thawed, and I was supposed to be able to launch my boat today for the contract, and they won't let us on until at least the 27th or until those restrictions are lifted. So it's just eating me up every day that goes by. Really? They won't even uh, let you put your boat in the water? Can't even put my boat in the water. And, you know, we're moored up all year, you know, 40 feet from anybody. You don't have to, if there's any place to be socially distant, it's on your sailboat. And I was going to say, that seems like that would be the best place to be socially distant is on a boat. Yeah, I think they just don't want to work. They don't want to maintain the... Nobody wants to work right now, Jimmy. <laughs> Everybody wants to 
I mean, people Except do want to work. I'm sure they're itching, but everyone likes being at home too and, and collecting some unemployment and just, I don't know. That's what I feel like is going on, but it's taken away my pleasure time on sailing. So when Summit County opens up, I'm going to be a happy man. That's that's my focus. All all the rest of the country can do whatever it wants to do. But Summit County needs to open. And right. as you know, I think you, you came from Dutour as well. And, you know, they got hit. That, that was a scary place to be as, as this was all happening. Um, and we were. Oh, we just missed it. I mean, literally from what I, I remember getting out of there and I coming back here. And just kind of watching all this start to unfold because after due to her, well, I mean, it had already been canceled by then, but at the, the plan at that point, there was going to be an X Games at the end of February in China. And they had pulled the plug secretly on that while we were in Aspen for Winter X. But just watching all this unfold and as the cases started to develop worse in the U.S., all of a sudden, Summit County was a hot spot literally the weekend after we all pulled out of there for due to her. There were, I think they, the story was there was a guy that had traveled in from Europe and he flew into Denver and then rented a car and drove up and he was up there at Brack and Copper and then had been around a bunch of people and he tested positive and then it was a scary situation from that point on. I was like, man, that's kind of when the reality of that hit home for me. I was like, I was literally just there. Yeah, that's when it hit for me too. We were, I mean, right after Dutour, we were so involved with this whole February April, February through April is just so busy for us um, with resorts being open. It's our, by far our busiest month. And so we were, we had assets on almost every mountain. And, and when that happened after due tour and then panic started to spread and it was like, and we yeah. had to get up there and get, get stuff off the mountain. And it was surreal being up there and um, I'll never forget it. I was at Steamboat and they, had decided midday, everybody seemed to announce their closure like midday, the same day. Um, so like people were skiing on the mountain and getting the news via their phone. Like this is the last day. This is it. You know, we're done, there's no more tomorrow. And I, I'll never forget this little kid. He was probably eight or nine years old, skied right by me at Steamboat and he stopped and he answered his phone and it was his mom. And he just started crying and he didn't even say anything. And he just started crying and I couldn't figure out what it was. And his buddy skied up and he just looked at me and he said, the resort's closing today. It's the last day. And it just broke his heart. And it was like seeing that across the board at almost every resort up there in Summit County was, you know, being on the mountain during the last day was just, it was so, and it just didn't feel right. But um, they got hit hard and it was scary, but, you know, every, we got all, we, we were lucky to everyone on our staff was healthy and we got everything back and, and good to go. And now we'll, it's selfish for me to, to just want them to open up. Obviously I want everyone to be safe and such a tourism industry up there. And it's very important to, to the Colorado economy that, that that place is, is active, that County's active. So I'm sure they're making the right decisions, but. Um, they, they did, they went through a nightmare for sure. Uh, that's what was so crazy about it. it was not just the nightmare, but the speed. I mean, it just, there was no, there was no slow roll and then middle ground. I mean, it literally just went from zero to a hundred, what seemed like overnight. Yeah. Just get everyone off the mountain and out of town immediately was seemed to be the plan. And 
Um, I mean, I guess it worked, you know, that they, they didn't get beat up too terribly bad. Uh, but it, it was, it was, it was a panic moment for them. And I think they, they made the right decision as tough as it was, but at that point you had to get everyone out and get everyone home and get, you know, the Denver airport was, was such a hub at that time that it was just important for the whole Colorado economy to, to get tourism out. And, uh, so, so people could make a plan again. And, uh, that's what they're doing. And we just, I guess, trust, trust that the people in charge are doing it the right way. And we come out on the other end of this and we can all go boating and go working and partying and drinking beers in parking lots together. That's another little nugget of all this that I wonder what's going to change moving forward too is air travel. I mean, obviously you have airports. I mean, you've got a ton of people that are coming through there from all over the place. And I mean, obviously DIA being a hub for you being just down the mountain there. Uh, I mean, Dallas Fort Worth here. I mean, we have one of the most trafficked airports in the United States. It just, I wonder, I wonder what sort of changes back to what we were talking about earlier with the temperature taking and whatnot, like what's that going to look like as all of this evolves and people start traveling more. I'd imagine it's going to be scary. You know, the, I feel like, and, and you guys probably all noticed this too, but as you travel through different airports around the country, I really feel like a lot of major airports have just now gotten their improvements done for post 9-11 security, like efficiency, you know, and, and making the airport efficient for that. And then now, are, are we going to have to keep six feet? Because that's going to change everything. I mean, we're talking about, we're going to need miles and miles to run here, but I, yeah, it's hard to say. Um, it's hard to say about airports and I just don't know what they're going to do. I, I wouldn't want to be the CEO of an airline right now. I can tell you that they got a lot of figuring out to do. And they, I mean, yeah, we were just, I mean, yeah, it's, well, you know, the, the question really becomes when do you, when you get back on a plane, I was just asking myself this, you know, we were looking at, at a contract out in South Carolina at the end of the month. And it's like, you know, is it, would I do this right now? Is it worth it or, or not? And, um, I think it's a, an internal question. Everyone's just going to have to ask whether they even want to get back on planes. And, and I think it, obviously they're going to do it, but I don't think there's anything wrong with the, uh, certainly a more a, a bigger drive to to be a more local economy and a more sustainable economy and for you know the it's uh again probably selfish of me saying this because we get we've had the opportunity to go all over the world and see all kinds of things and now it's just like oh well, we should just stay local but um you know it's um a slowdown in air travel it's great for the environment and obviously the um, sustainability of, of our climate and everything is a, is a big thing right now. So if nothing else, if it stays down for a year and uh, people don't go traveling then you know, it'll give, give earth a little time to heal up and there's a silver lining in it. But, uh, yeah, I wouldn't want to be in charge of an airline. That's for sure. Yeah. That's the hot seat to be in right now. All right. So this is the fun part of the whole podcast. We get to throw you uh, under the bus a little bit here. Uh, we ask you to tell us a story. This can be best or worst event experience. Your choice. 
something that stood out in your mind is overcoming adversity, something that was a bucket list type situation as far as travel, travel people you work with, something crazy that happened at an event. You get to decide. Tell us a story, Dave. Oh, man. Uh, well, I'd stay with the best. Um, I guess I guess I have – well, one involves Ange, actually, and I, it's, a, it's a brilliant story. We had – we were working straight rhythm, Red Bull straight rhythm out in Pomona. And um, a buddy of ours, Tim Carlson, gave himself a pretty <laughs> rough night. Yeah. Um, gave himself a pretty rough night after the event and he had a little trouble bouncing back the next day. Um, he had a lot of trouble bouncing back the next day so much that he spent most of the day sleeping in the trailer on a pile of bed linens. Um, and Brett Taylor was in charge at this time, which, which helps the whole story. But so Tim's is a it's a wasted day. Um, he gets his act together, shows up the next day. And Brett's, he's still, I mean, he's still brutally hungover. This is two days into this now, and he's still having trouble keeping keeping food down, everything. So Brett's punishment is that Tim has to go pick up all the trash around the venue. And if if you've been to Straight Rhythm, you know that the that Pomona venue is a big venue. It's, it's a good day's work. And if you're hungover, bending down all day and looking at the ground is not really the most comfortable thing. It was really a genius punishment. Um, so Tim spends all day, and it's like 110 degrees, so the worst. And it's like 3.30, 4 o'clock, and we're kind of all finishing it up. And Tim comes Tim comes back, and he says, Brett, we've got – I got all the trash. There's no more trash anywhere in the video. So Ange is in the office this time, and she leaves. Um, no one knows what she's doing, but she goes outside – and five minutes later, she calls over the radio to Tim and says, Tim, I found some more trash out here. And Ange had gone outside and taken bags of trash out of the dumpster and gone and dumped them out in different places of the venue so that Timmy would have to go back and pick them up again. <laughs> and uh, Ange was just, I was, it was the most brilliant thing I've ever seen, I think, and she was so mad at Tim. I'll never forget it. Um, Ange is obviously such a sweetheart, but so mad at Tim for missing a day's work. That doesn't fly in, in Ange's world. And um, I just thought that that whole thing was absolutely brilliant. And um, I'm, that's always been my favorite story as far as um, things on an event. I think not, not, and Tim, not to throw Tim under the bus, Tim's done some phenomenal things too. I, at cliff diving, um, probably the most phenomenal thing I've ever seen in an event was the Red Bull Air Force. Um, in Texas, the cliff diving event is there's like 5,000 boats in a little, uh, I mean, maybe like there's 5,000 boats in enough water for 5,050. Right, it's packed. And then you have the diving platform. And then there's this little alleyway for like the divers and jet skis and such to maneuver in between the platform cliff and the, and the crowd. And um, Jeff Prezano and Sean McCormick were the air force that day and they jumped out of their plane and they had it, Tim, they had a plan where they were going to, Jeff was going to land on Tim's jet ski. Um, and if, I mean, if you've seen these guys, you know that 
they're flying. I mean, when they come down, they are they are absolutely mocking. So Tim built basically we cleared this runway, and uh, they had it timed somehow without any practice, and Tim floored that thing, that jet ski, and uh, Jeff came flying down, and he I was, I was lucky enough to be right in front of it when it happened, and he just flew right alongside the jet ski, matched its speed and then just like slid like it was the most seamless thing ever right onto the back seat dropped the parachute on the ground and the place just went absolutely bonkers it was it was an incredible moment and it was it got played all over national news after it happened and uh, it was as far as just pure skill and two people coming together to do something that they had talked about once and never i mean they had dreamed of the night before uh it was a a shining moment for Tim, despite his uh, his bad day in Angie's book. But um, so that was a, that was a really cool thing to see. You know, you get to see all these crazy athletes, professional athletes, do things all over the world and things you never think you'd see in a lifetime, much less witness in person. And then it turns out that, at least for me, I think some of my best friends probably end up providing the, the best moments on the road, as I'm sure that is the case with most most of us. I think that's twice now, and Jules, correct me if I'm wrong. I think that's twice now since we've started recording these things that Timmy's got to mention for that whole Texas cliff diving situation where Red Bull Air Force parachuted onto the back of his wave runner. <laughs> it's Am I imagining that? Did we, have, did we have someone else talk about no. that too? Yeah, we, we did. Um, it's Okay. Yeah, we did. Uh, it was Tommy Deck because it was just it's epic. It's That's legendary. Right, it it's, it's on every it's every promotion that I've seen for cliff diving. That clip is always used in it. So, um, yeah, kudos to uh, Carlson for just making yeah. making Red Bull marketing material. It was uh, you just it was. It's just so it was magic just because it was it really was because nobody thought like no one even knew what was going on in the crowd and it was just when it happened he sat down on the back of that jet ski and it was like a moment of like a second and a half of everybody jaw drop and then at the same time all you know ten thousand people just went absolutely bonkers and uh it was just Tim, he had the biggest smile on his face. I, I was so lucky to be sit. I was the rescue boat in case it went wrong. And um, so, <laughs> so like he drove it. right by me and it was, it was phenomenal. And Sean McCormick, he was going to wakeboard right behind him. And he had a wakeboard on his feet and land and do a couple little tricks, but he kind of ate it. So I ended up having to pick up Sean and he got in my boat and he just, he looked at me and I was like, dude, that was awesome. And he just goes, I just got my ass kicked. He goes, my stunt sucked. <laughs> and uh, he just, honest assessment, man, he was pissed off. He wanted to be the guy that landed on the jet ski. Um, he knew it was a special moment for, for Air Force and for Red Bull. And for anybody that was there, obviously, it was a good one. Yeah, I think everybody parked in that cove was like, hey, what's that guy doing on that wave runner? And I was sitting up on top of the the barge there with the judges, and I'm like, what's Timmy doing? And then I was like, is he going to try to catch that guy? And then I, I couldn't believe it. I mean, it happened right in front of that barge. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Yeah, it's just a 
and then that whole place just went everyone just blowing their air horns on their boats and whatnot the whole place just going ballistic and the announcers it was like whoa timmy you just lit this place up yeah that's good um you know and as you know that's when i first saw that event and those athletes jumping off those cliffs and doing what they did i was like the first time i saw it i just I looked at Marky and I was like, hey, this is the most phenomenal thing I've ever seen anyone do. I mean, that takes some guts to get up there and not only jump off that thing from 90 feet, but, and the women from 70 feet now, uh, but to do what they do in the air and then land blind, it's just, uh, what a precision sport and what a unique set of, of skills and characters that are involved in it. Um, really a phenomenal event for sure. Yeah, you know what? I, it is impressive, and I my hat's off to those male and female athletes. But I also got to give you guys credit on that build-out too because to be there for as long as you are, number one, under that oppressive Texas heat, and number two, the amount of stuff out there, I mean, that is rattlesnake city out there. So for you guys to deal with that, I mean, that is a daunting task walking up that trail from the dock to get to the top of that, where the diving platforms are. And you guys are hauling equipment up there and building that platform. And there's just all kinds of stuff out there. That's just waiting to sting you or take a bite out of you on that trail. I mean, you guys to spend a month doing that. I mean, bowing down. That is, I wouldn't do it. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's another unique for a very unique build for sure. And uh, it's a, uh, I, I spent one year on that cliff crew and I figured out real quick that my job was down on the boat, putting the docks in and, uh, driving boats around. That was, that was better for me than being up there on that heat. Uh, I, I got out of that pretty quick, but that's a, um, it's another very, very unique hangman event in that, you know, we we're there and not only are we there, but we, we, we rent one big house and everyone stays in the same house. And, uh, Marky brings in a chef, and you know breakfast lunch and dinner is picked up every day and it's right there in the cove um so it's it's really i mean as far as events go it's another another really cool experience it's different than a lot of other events and that texas heat is is special and uh, the texas people are unique and um it's it's a great place for it I, there's a lot of great places for that event but man they found a gold mine definitely down there rumor has it it's coming back yeah, that's what I hear. We'll see. Uh, that's the word I get from like my Red Bull people. Well, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a good one to be on and a good one to be at. And if, for those that, I mean, it doesn't do it justice on TV. They go a lot of cool places and jump off a lot of cool things. But when you're just sitting down there looking up at that platform, it's uh, yeah, something else. Well, this is the part of the show where you get to throw out the gratuitous plug and tell people where they can find you and where you're going to be and what you have upcoming in the event world. Well, we're, uh, we're kind of in the same boat as a lot of people. We're, we're waiting on things to come back and then we're progressing on, on new ideas and such, but you can kind of find out more about what we're doing uh, at otaops.com. Um, that's the website and, uh, it's kind of all on there and we have Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all that as well. And there's links, links to that. But, um, at this point it's, um, we're, 
we're just kind of locked up in the warehouses and we're doing a lot of uh a lot of fabrication a lot of cleaning and um, building some new assets um where we have warehouses in boise and salt lake in denver and kansas city so we're able to we've been uh, we've been utilizing those and doing it's been fun doing a little emergency work um helping the government out we've been working with the national guard a little bit with uh logistics around personal protective equipment and um getting those getting those out and distributed and stored and just kind of what they need in certain areas and uh, um just kind of foraying we've we've uh, started to kind of w- look at that field and um help out with FEMA and a lot of our local agencies in each area because the the staff's there and they're ready to work um so that's what we've been doing right now just trying to figure out how we can help and how we can keep people busy and um you know we're just in the same boat as everyone else finding the next opportunity but um yeah we keep it keep things updated at at otaops.com and you can find us there and um we're out there we'll see everyone out on the road for sure i can't wait to get back well, we look forward to uh, crossing paths with you again. And on behalf of Jules and Angela, thanks for joining us out here today. And thanks for telling us your stories and uh, just for being a part of the side hustle out here. We hope to uh, to be out there in the trenches with you here in the near future. And I hope you get to go sailing. I hope I do too. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very honored you guys had me on the show and I'm very excited that you guys are, are doing this. I think it's great. And I'll continue to listen and spread the word and, keep up the good work it's i guess we've kind of figured out in the last 48 hours that it's a bit therapeutic for us because just kind of like sitting here and not having a lot going on it's just kind of cool and sort of one of the underlying themes of all this is you know we have all these people that we work with all the time and sort of learning things about each other that we never really knew before so it's it's been a really it's been a fun discovery process hey anything we can do to to stay in touch and uh you know just become better friends and and meet new people i don't feel like good friends with you now jimmy and you know i didn't know ann or or vanessa either before those interviews and just hearing those stories that uh you know it's it's great content and uh it's good material and everyone's got their own story and their unique path so it's a fantastic idea hats off to you guys well, one of these days, I'm going to have some parking lot beers, and I want to hear more about the railroad because that's always been a passion of mine. My grandfather was a Pullman conductor for years, so I kind of grew up with trains in my blood as a kid. So I, when you said you used to work on the railroad, I got all excited. Like eight-year-old me was like, oh, I, I'm buying the beers. I got to hear more about this. Oh, yeah, we could burn through a 30-pack easy with those stories. I'll, I'll talk about the railroad any time. Best job I've ever I, had. I can't wait. I cannot <laughs> wait. Looking forward to it. Angela, closing comments. Cool. No, thanks, Dave. It's good to hear from you. So, um, and thanks for sharing my Tim Carlson garbage story. So, (laughs) (laughs) that that was a fun event. You know, we got to get Carlson on one of these now, too. Timmy, you you need to be part of it. It's the side hustle, (laughs) Timmy Carlson garbage edition. All right, I'll hit him up. I think if you're would you say that yeah. trash talking? <laughs> you should just wait a couple more episodes and then put together like a bunch of clips of people talking about him, then have him on to respond to these 
accusations. We, the, uh, we need to get him and Nimitz on together like a duo. Oof. Yeah, that's oh. right. It's an election year. It's an I election year. Those two are busy. <laughs> I don't think people are ready for him and Nimitz together. If we get those two together, can I just go ahead and put in the request now that that's a video podcast? Uh, yes, I think that would have to be a video podcast. I think I think we got to okay. make something happen. I think we also need like a one big uh, states and kingdom crew one too. Like we yeah. need Brett because we need yeah. the we need the asshole commentary too. No, so. I, I miss Brett. <laughs> we'll work on Brett that. Brett could just type in messages like, "What's that?" show on vh1 it was like pop-up video or whatever where they played 80s videos and then they just had these little balloons of text that could be brett like we could be having these video conversations and brett could just be interjecting like yeah that's not how that happened <laughs> <laughs> we all miss brett <laughs> he's out there somewhere i'm gonna hit him up and tell him he needs to get on one of these two yeah he's waiting on shake shack and or in and out to open up they can get some burgers. All right. And on that in. note, so right. Carlson, we need Carlson, Taylor, Nimitz. So, all right. So the uh, production crew's got some, do. some work to do. On I don't know how much he'd talk, but we need to get Joe Simpson on here too. <laughs> You guys got a long list of people you need to get on this. I'm telling you, it's going to last for years. <laughs> <laughs> True that. Oh, my goodness. Well, I'm glad you came on, Dave. Yeah, this was awesome. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for calling. Anytime. Um, it's, it really was a pleasure.